and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 218. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Sam Whipple. Hey, Kip. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's always a pleasure, especially for some of our more philosophical and abstract conversations, like today's topic. And that is a thought which has held my attention for a really long time since my days in grade school, learning about American history and specifically George Washington, who admittedly has a history that is far more complex than I learned in grade school. But there was a particular detail of his leadership that always really fascinated me. And that was that after he had proven himself in the Continental Army, winning the American Revolution, and of course securing America's independence from Britain, he had become a renowned figure. His name is now, of course, plastered across our country in various districts or states, perhaps street names. But he was a man who, when initially offered power to lead America, was very reluctant and hesitant. And it wasn't his first impulse or strongest desire to take up that mantle. And part of me thinks that's historical context, that America had just freed itself from tyrannical rule of King George. But I also think there's something really moral going on there. However you might judge George Washington in other areas of his life, this idea that he understood what power meant and that he didn't want it, to me, feels like an honorable concept admittedly one that requires further analysis, but that's what I want to talk to you about today. This idea that people who want power don't deserve it, but those who might deserve power are often the ones who shy away from it or feel some reluctance toward it. Thanks, Kip. It's a really interesting idea because when you present that binary of people who want power, people who don't, the first question that comes to my mind is motivation. I wonder in many cases how we think about power what it is, what kinds of forms it comes in, and how that leads to people wanting it. Let's take political power, since you've brought up the example of George Washington. On a personal note, as someone who was a political science major in college, who's generally been involved in the political sphere for some time now, one of the questions I get most frequently from relatives, from friends, from anyone who knows that I have even a passing interest in politics, and one I take as a compliment, but one I also find interesting is, oh, when are you going to run for president? I always find that interesting because I think it reveals a lot about what we think about power and how, frankly, one-dimensionally we often look at jobs like the presidency. The decisions that one has to make in a role like that the enormous responsibility that comes with commanding not only large budgets and militaries, but also holding the lives of so many people in one's hands, I think the consequence of holding a job like that and the enormous scrutiny required, particularly in the modern era, is almost unbearable. It's hard to imagine how one could really function in a role like that. And when I'm asked that or told that by friends and family, I think to take it as a compliment, because I suppose what it means is that they imagine that I would have the right character to be in a position like that, which is flattering to hear. But I'm also, in a way, glad to hear that when people think of a job like the presidency, they simply imagine that someone in that role would be not only conscious of the responsibility that it comes with, but have the capacity to deal with the many responsibilities it holds. Yet at the same time, if they were to imagine that I was someone who really wanted to be president, who wanted to hold all that power in my own hands, I wonder if that wouldn't also scare them a little bit. 
I wonder if someone who wants all of that responsibility can ever truly understand before they get into the office what it means to carry the weight of making those decisions and of having so much power at your fingertips. I think nearly every president, in the U.S. at least, has gone on record in one way or another to express just how unprepared they were when they first stepped into the office to carry the weight of the decisions that need to be made, of the choices that go from bad to worse and are rarely ever good. Rahm Emanuel in particular, the current mayor of Chicago and President Obama's former chief of staff, said in a documentary once that every decision that arrives on the president's desk is between bad and worse, and if it's good, somebody else will deal with it. And I wonder if people who aspire to jobs like that truly understand that they're put in positions that require them to make enormously and, frankly, often bad decisions. Not that the decision they make will in and of itself be bad, but that they need to make a choice that will hurt someone somewhere at any given time. And going back to that question of motivations, I think one question to ask is whether or not it can be good that someone who's motivated to be in a position like that knows that perhaps they've never been in that position before or that they're part of a group that hasn't had a chance to hold power like that before. But for one president, every single one of ours has been a white guy. And for President Obama to come into the presidency, I can't imagine the enormous feeling he must have had that he had an additional responsibility, being the first African-American president, to not only succeed in the role, but to do good by as many people as he possibly could for the sake of not only himself and the country, but also to represent a positive step forward for African-Americans in leadership positions. I think that was an enormous responsibility that he carried. But to me, that motivation of being a person to carry that role for a new group that has not been represented in that position in our society before is a very positive aspect of wanting power. And so I think that motivation question is one I would always consider when thinking about that binary between those who want power and those who don't. What are their reasons for wanting it? Motivations are absolutely essential in this topic for a reason that you very well laid out. People won't know what positions of power are like until they've actually held them. And I think that's key in this topic because someone's relationship to power or their conceptions of it reveal a great deal about how their imagination operates. If I told you I could give you infinite power, where would your mind initially go? Would it go to a destructive place? Would it go to a creative place? Would you have selfish or selfless intentions? Where in the vast spectrum of human emotions and motivations would your mind go? Because power, in some conceptions, is a form of freedom. It allows you to do things that you want to do, that you now have the ability to do. But Sam, you were wise in pointing to the presidency, as I suspect Washington may have understood in my recollection of how he may have thought, and note the restrictions, the formalities, the responsibilities, and the burdens that might come with power, but also change how it operates. And I think place checks and balances on those who do have power. But even prior to the burdens and responsibilities that come with power, what I find interesting within the concept of motivations is that you don't always know what other people's motivations are. They may not feel they need to share them with you. It's one thing that interests me in our democracy because I don't think we often have those direct conversations with political candidates. 
And frankly, I don't blame them for not openly revealing their motivations because I don't know that that would move the needle or change our politics or our society. And I wonder, when people don't reveal their motivations, again to the topic of imagination, where the minds of the public go. If you don't tell us why you're aiming for the presidency, are most of us cynical or pessimistic enough to believe that you're only doing it for selfish and power-hungry aims? Are there those of us who might be naive in believing that you want the presidency or other positions of leadership for the sake of change and improvement? I wonder if listeners based in age or experience might have different or polar answers to that question based on how they view the world and presume other people's motivations, which truthfully, they can't ever fully know. It's unfortunate, too, that in many cases, particularly in the American system and during electoral cycles, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to truly judge the motivation of any particular candidate, in part because I think we all have in our own minds a sense of what those motivations are. It's difficult for me to imagine a case in which a candidate being asked, so what's compelled you to run for this particular office? that doesn't generate a response that would be heard as true or false regardless of the content. It's hard to put evidence to motivation in a way that's concrete for people. And unfortunately, I think that's something that's very hard to overcome, particularly in an environment where we get information about candidates from media, from external sources, and rarely from direct face-to-face conversation. But I'm thinking about your point about imagination again, and imagining what someone who seeks an office of power might imagine themselves doing in a role like that. Because I think another important element of this is the degree to which we can imagine our power in any particular circumstance being greater or more limited than it actually is. People who want power don't deserve it, and those who deserve it don't want it. Some people may want power simply because they think their role will be far greater than it actually is. I'm reminded of a quote from a prominent historian who, studying the American presidency, remarked that the greatest aspect of presidential power is in fact presidential weakness. That one finds in that role that it is really the checks and balances on what he or she can or cannot do that truly defines the presidency that it requires that kind of compromise with other branches, of assessing the legal merits of one's own position to be able to accomplish your goals, that defines so much of what one is able to accomplish as a president. And I think that extends far down below the presidency, that ideally, in any model of a powerful leader or figure, we might imagine that hopefully they would think that their power is only as great as that of those around them to be able to collaborate and accomplish things together. I imagine that as something of an ideal for a leader in any circumstance personally, but I could also imagine a situation in which someone might prefer a leader or a powerful figure who believes that they can accomplish it all on their own and who can do it without the constraints of compromise and deliberation that comes with working with other people. It's one of these interesting questions of democracy, how much power we choose to give or attribute to any one person, and the extent to which that power is real or imagined by the public, by the person who holds the office, or by anyone who simply observes it. In many cases, I think we ascribe more power to people than they actually have, which can end up leading to situations in which they simply allow that perception to get to their own heads 
We create almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in which people who don't have nearly the power they assume to have are able to exert broad influence on society and people at large. I think that's true particularly in the media landscape we see today, where small voices can be amplified to large degrees and have an outsized impact on the way that we conduct our lives, that businesses operate, that any number of things happen. But I wonder if that means that power ultimately in some ways is just as much a factor of the observer, of the person affected or the people affected, as it is of the person who exerts it. And in some ways, that makes me optimistic. It may very well be that power, however we may define it, is in some ways only as potent as we perceive it to be, particularly in cases where it isn't a simple transactional power, as in, say, having an economic relationship or a business relationship with a person, people, or entity. And that gives a lot of agency to the people who are under the whim of that power to be able to define it for what it is, to stand up to it in the cases where it's abused. For me, this idea also alludes to self-awareness and how cognizant someone is of how they might behave were they given power or of some of their most subconscious desires, which I think we often seek to fulfill, whether we know it or not. It's possible that some people who seek power might have a conscious reason for doing so and a sub or unconscious motivation that they couldn't put into words but would still attempt to fulfill once they acquired whatever power it was. I'm certainly reminded of the phrase that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and I suspect that many forms of power corrupt in their own ways, perhaps because they give us the false perception that we are more than human, that somehow power has erased our fallibility or our flaws, and that we can use it to correct ourselves when maybe it's simply that we are magnified, both in our flaws and in our beauty. But Sam, as you and I have both wondered aloud on this episode, before we conclude, what would you like to turn to the audience and ask them to explicitly consider after listening to our conversation? I would definitely hope that our audience would think a bit about how, in a case where we have to choose people who enter positions of power, can we best assess what their motivations might be? We can't truly ever know the mind of another person, but what might be a good proxy for understanding what it is that drives a person to seek a position of power and how they might act once they get there? And I would ask the audience, especially after having heard our thoughts, do you agree with this view of the world? Does it strike you as unnecessarily reductive? And Sam, to your point about it being a binary, for those listening, are there regions in between these two poles that you think are worth exploring or discussing? And lastly, though the word power is certainly a strong and densely packed term, are there people in your lives, maybe not regarding the term power, but responsibility or leadership, that you notice stray away from it even though they have traits or characteristics which would make them well-suited to those specific roles? And Sam, on the topic of power, I appreciated having you on as a friend and an equal for this discussion today. And I've appreciated being here as well. Thanks for having me. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we're not the only people affected by or thinking about the concept of power. So we'd really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show, as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. 
And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.